0: This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2020. From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today... Peter Cuneo and the turnaround at Marvel.
1: It all sounds very sexy now, right? I mean, you look back at Marvel. Yeah. Do you think that there were no days when we were yelling at each other, want to throw each other out the window right. sometimes, right. or right. you think we just thought this up and we're all brilliant and we all agreed on everything. Hardly. Hardly.
0: How Peter Cuneo came to be known
2: as the turnaround superhero who led Marvel back from the brink.
0: So it's hard to imagine now, but in the mid-1980s, Marvel Comics made the vast majority of its money off paper comic books. Now today, comic books account for a tiny fraction of Marvel's revenue. Movies, merch, and licensing fees have turned Marvel into one of the jewels in Disney's crown. Disney bought Marvel for $4.2 billion in 2009. And it would turn out to be one of Disney's best acquisitions— but just a few years earlier, and this is hard to believe, Marvel was on the brink of bankruptcy. So the company brought in Peter Cuneo to help save it from collapse. And over the course of the next few years, Marvel essentially transformed from a comic books company to a movie company. Today, Marvel films like The Avengers and Spider-Man regularly top the box office. But back when Peter came aboard, the company was struggling to figure out how to use its more than 7,000 characters in ways that could make it profitable. And the choice to even bring Peter to Marvel seemed unusual. After all, his previous experience was running brands like Remington Electric Razors and Clairol Hair Care products. But Peter was also considered a steady hand. It's a quality he believes he developed as a young officer on a destroyer during the Vietnam War.
1: Very early. I was new on the ship. We were in the war zone. Um, I had been on the ship a couple of weeks. Do you remember where you were? Like you know, Off of North Vietnam. And um, our assignment at that time was what's called plane guarding. When the carriers launch or recover aircraft, they want to have a destroyer or some ship a mile in front and a mile in trail, right. so that if the planes go in the water, God forbid, hopefully we can pick up the pilots, and actually the worst time for Navy planes was actually launch and landing back on the carrier, okay. the time generally of most stress, believe it or not. Hmm. Not that there wasn't stress over North Vietnam, but it is now the midwatch. The mid-watch on a Navy ship generally is from midnight to four in the morning. I am on the bridge. My only duty is to observe because I'm brand new, I Hmm. couldn't be more wet behind the ears. Uh, We have what's called an officer of the deck in the Navy who is trained and and is qualified to drive the ship, great Hmm. deal of responsibility. In between the launches, you float around kind of at random, uh, waiting for an encrypted call from the carrier to tell you to take station in front of them or in back of them. My assignment is one mile in trail, I got to get to that spot. As fast as possible, because if I don't, somebody could go in the water yep. and it would be on us for not being on station. So it's now the mid-watch. The captain is asleep in his chair. The captain, uh, during when, when we're in a combat zone, virtually never leaves the bridge, except for a few bodily functions. Right. And the captain is exhausted. We get an order from the carrier to take station behind them as they turn into the wind to recover aircraft. Right. The officer deck does the required calculation, and he gives an order to the helmsman, and we come to flank speed, which is full speed. The captain is groggy. Even though I'm brand new, I can tell something is not right. Hmm. The captain um, does his own calculation. He countermands the officer of the deck's orders. The officer of the deck says, Captain, I think we should do that calculation again, and I know already something is not right because mm-hmm. they should not be disagreeing. About two minutes later, we look up and we're about to collide with the other destroyer. Wow. The captain gives an order of hard right rudder. The only time in my Navy career I ever heard hard rudder.
0: Does that entire ship just veer hard right? I mean, did you feel it? Everybody, I mean, everyone on that ship knew what was going on? At,
1: at flank speed, when you have that kind of rudder, put the rudder over that hard, the ship actually leans. Wow. And it could lean 15 or 20 degrees, even that <sighs> big ship, because of the momentum. It's just physics. Yeah. Anyway, we get on station. And the next day, a ship a ship is like a little town. Everybody knows everything. Yeah. The next day, the buzz in the ship is, the captain almost got us killed last night. Can we trust this captain?
0: Huh?
1: Is he the leader that we need? Even the officers are questioning. And the captain does something... Which turns out, in my experience, to be extraordinary. The captain called a meeting of all the officers, and I'm there, just again, sitting and listening. And he starts the meeting by saying, last night we had an incident. I made a mistake, and I want to spend the next hour completely analyzing what happened so it never happens again. Wow. And I could see, just sitting there in one hour, the mood of the officers. And, of course, they would affect the... the, sailors ultimately change from can we trust this captain to we could die for this captain. Hmm. Because he's telling us in effect he cares more about the safety of the ship than his career.
0: So so when he stood up there and he said, look, I made a, a mistake.
1: Everyone was sort of stunned to hear that. Pretty surprised I'll tell you. And the end of the story is this. That captain eventually made admiral. Wow. And... Um, you know, we all have our heroes in life and that first captain would certainly be one of them for me. And one of these essentials that I live by in leadership and have uh, is the essential about tell people what you really think, mm-hmm. admit your mistakes. Many people think that admitting their mistakes makes them look weak. Right? It doesn't. It makes you look human. Now, if you're talking about a mistake every day, that's a different issue, of course, but basically. Great leaders are willing to show their, their human side. Yep. It is very, very important.
0: So after your time in the Navy, a hugely important time in your young life at that point, um, someone encourages you to go study business, and you, you went to Harvard Business School. Did you think of yourself as like, a, that was going to be your life? I'm going to get into business and management?
1: No. I had had a good run in the Navy. And my three years of active duty that I was required to serve were coming up. I had just gotten married to my beautiful wife, Maris. The captain came to me and said, Cuneo, I have good news for you. The Navy wants to offer you a regular commission. So a regular commission is what the graduates of Annapolis get. Right. And their requirement is five years as opposed to the three years for reservists. At least that's what it was at the time. And uh, I was thrilled because I love the Navy thrilled. But my wife wasn't thrilled. And Hmm. she said uh, she knew that the life of a ship driver in the Navy is go to sea for six months. She doesn't see you. She raises the kids alone and that wasn't for her. And I had to respect that. She'd already been around the ship for six months. You had seen
0: yourself basically maybe having a career in the Navy.
1: Yes. Hmm. I love the adventure of the Navy. That's really what it came down to. It's that simple. So I went back to the captain and I said to him, Um, I'm not going to stay in, Captain, but I really appreciate what the Navy is offering. Captain said to me, so, CUNEO, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't really know. I'm going to go to graduate school. He said, for what? I said, I don't know. So he said to me, CUNEO, you should go to Harvard Business School. Now, he had just gotten his doctorate from Harvard Business School. The Navy is very big on education for its officers. So I... Said to him the truth. I didn't even know Harvard had a business school, and I, my self-image does not include me going to the Ivy League. He said to me, Cuneo, you don't know how good you are. Hmm. And, of course, I just took it at that time as, oh, he's being nice. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, do me a favor. Take the business boards, which I did, and I got a very high grade. Yep. And, of course that changed my life. And by the way, my beautiful Maris is now my wife of forty-eight years. Congratulations! Thank you.
0: Okay, so you go to Harvard Business School, and then you you graduate around nineteen seventy-three, um, and you were at this this conglomerate, W R Grace, for a few years, I guess, um, uh, focused on on consumer business, and then you went to Bristol Myers. Squibb, uh what, what did you do there? Like, were you in marketing or, or were you in sales? Did they yeah. have... No,
1: I was very much a financial person uh, involved in accounting, involved in financial planning, involved in capital spending. So I got to get the sweep of a business very quickly, hmm. which was very useful. And I learned how to analyze the success or failure of a business, at least from the numbers. Now, there's a lot more to that that particular challenge, as you know, than just looking at numbers. But that was the start for me.
0: Did you, I mean, you would end up spending, I think, 14 years at Bristol-Myers Squibs with, with different divisions,
1: Clairol, Black & Decker. Did you see yourself when you were there as a lifer? Yes, I thought that I was good at it. I will say there were times when playing the game of big corporations, yeah. and I was skilled at that game. But deep down inside, I really wanted to know. Okay, that's great that I can do this, uh, but you know, when only ten percent of your time is building a business, the rest is politics or dealing with uh, just bureaucracy. I was always interested in, the back of my mind, you know, maybe I can get something that will be a little different. What happened to me actually was turned out to be very fortuitous. Was that I was thrown into my first turnaround? It was a small division of Clorox.
0: Which is beauty care,
1: right? It was beauty uh, yes, products. Yes, yes. But there's also a, an orphan division of Clairol, called personal care products, like hair dryers, hot oh, rollers, oh, right? Okay. Curling irons, right. foot spas, and so on. Right. So, so not so a on. not a
0: hugely profitable.
1: No, right. and very controversial. Like many people in corporations say, "Why are we even in this well, business?" Yeah, because
0: I mean, curling irons—the profit margin is not going to be the same as bottles of shampoo, right?
1: Yeah. Exactly right. But I was tossed into a situation. I was asked to take over the international division. It was a small business doing business, though, in 25 different countries.
0: Hmm. Was the question posed to you, Peter, should we shut this down? Or was it, Peter, we need you to save this business? No,
1: there was no shutting down. That
0: was never discussed. You had to save that business. Okay, So you didn't have a whole lot of room to maneuver.
1: No, no.
0: So was it a marketing problem was it a was it an efficiency problem? What was going on?
1: it is it was primarily a leadership problem. Hmm. I've done seven turnarounds, and I would tell you that virtually everyone was mostly a leadership it's problem. not
0: about it's not about inefficiency it's not about m- bad marketing it's about managers or management
1: generally speaking, sure, there's some of those other things yeah. like poor marketing uh, but i've my career has been in businesses that you call creative businesses, yeah. By that, I mean that they are—they were not dependent on technology for success or failure. Uh, competition was not going to come up with a new hairdryer, for example, that was going to blow your product out of right. the water. So what was the leadership problem? It's attitude. The leadership in that case tended to be very omnipotent, uh, was not in touch with the employees. There were a lot of good people in the organization that had not been freed up right. to really fly. And I had to over time find those people and so once they were given more responsibility and allowed to actually drive some of the business we started to have success there was one other very big factor when you're designing say a hair dryer right you can imagine your big market is the united states sure but then you have all these other countries actually these products were affected by culture for example no french woman would ever be seen in hot rollers Right. So you couldn't sell a product there, whereas in the United States, hot rollers were perfectly acceptable. Sure. Mm-hmm. So figuring out what products you could bring to market and what you couldn't was a challenge. Mm-hmm. And here's the other big factor. A lot of great ideas that had come from other countries into the U.S. for products had been ignored because the organization was simply too U.S.-centric. Right. I started saying, this is a great idea from the U.K. This is a great idea from Australia. You know, this is a great idea from Norway. We're going to maybe adapt this for around the world. And that was a big change for the organization. The biggest thing about turnarounds in general is the company or the organization may be bankrupt financially, but they're always bankrupt from a cultural standpoint. The value system of the organization has to be changed. It's been so torn
0: down, you essentially have to rebuild it from the ground up.
1: People expect to lose.
0: Yeah. All right, so you eventually would leave uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, and then spend about uh, three years, I guess, on a similar turnaround at Black and Decker, um, and then '93 you end up at Remington. How did that come back? And, and by the way, this is a company I should say that made the the Remington Microblade razor, as close as your blade, or your money back. It was this was a famous commercial. People probably remember that. What, what was going on at the company in 1993?
1: Uh, Victor Cayam, who is the father of Advertising that was what we used to call CEO advertising. Right. The he, CEO his face was on, on TV. Went on television. Yeah. No leader, no CEO had ever been willing to actually put their face on advertising before. Uh, And it
0: was largely a successful company for a while, right? Yes, for a
1: while. Yeah, definitely.
0: Was there competition from straight razors, from other electric razors? What what was happening?
1: There's that competition. There's uh, always, but I think what had happened is that Victor had some setbacks financially with the New England Patriots. He
0: bought the New England Patriots.
1: Yes. Because he just loved football, and so... I don't know the details, actually. Yep. Uh, his deal may not have been as lucrative as it might have been. Right.
0: But how did that affect Remington? I mean, it's a separate thing. Well, right? because
1: he was having financial reverses there, he had used his ownership of Remington ah, as collateral okay. on loans to buy the Patriots. Right. So the banks are saying, well, wait a minute. This is uh, an issue. And then he was spending a lot of time on that and less on Remington, and Remington started to – Really decline. Uh, to, to decline. So, so what
0: happened? Did you get a call from him or yeah, somebody? Yeah, so I
1: had known Victor. Uh, believe it or not, I had done a joint venture. We, we had sold Remington Shavers in Germany when I took over that, the, my first turnaround, which was the – At
0: Bristol-Myers. Right, right. Okay. How close were they at that time to bankruptcy?
1: The company was strained. The company, you might argue, was in virtual bankruptcy, not legal bankruptcy, if you looked at the kind of loans they had wow. and what have you. It was just felt we needed uh, somebody to come in that had, you know, could put full time in on the job, and I had been on the board, so they asked me to do it.
0: What attracted you to, t- to the job? I mean, was it was it so a challenge? Yeah,
1: yes. At this point, I I, I have to tell you, I I, have, I am now officially addicted to turnaround okay. challenges. Right. I enjoyed doing them. I I had had success. Um, I also will tell you that my sense of risk coming back from the Navy in Vietnam was very different Mm -hmm. than most human beings. You're going to make a lot of people unhappy and the outcome is uncertain. Mm -hmm. And initially, everybody's scared every day that works in the company. So, it's not for everybody. So, what what
0: were some of the things that you had to do to stop the bleeding?
1: Well, the advertising was a fact. Victor had been advertising as you described very well for many, many years with no change. Essentially, the same advertisement the product he was holding up was the same product from six to seven years before
0: all right so you get to the company and I'm presuming I'm assuming to you have to make cuts you have to cut staff
1: So the biggest change was moving manufacturing to Asia because it was being made in, Bruce, Bridge, in, in Bridgeport, Bridgeport Connecticut right and we didn't move every product but we moved the products that made the most sense. And, of course, that meant there were less jobs in uh, manufacturing, less American jobs. I often, though, um, when, when I hear politicians, even today, talking about moving jobs back yeah. and forth and we're going to retain jobs, the reality of, of some of these jobs is really very simple. If you want to save the company and all the jobs, so I, I would argue at Remington I saved most of the jobs but not all. You're going to have to ma- adopt. Your competition is already in Asia. This mm-hmm. was the case at Remington, right? Making competitive products at the same quality with far less cost.
0: Like you, uh, these are like Asian manufacturers, like, Norelco, and other brands.
1: Uh, yes, right. Yes, you basically have to go there. There was that aspect, and of course, our costs went down substantially, and we became much more competitive.
0: Right. You were there again three years. This is starting to sound like a pattern. Three years, two and a half, three years. In that three-year time period, uh, you essentially helped to sell this company to a group of private equity investors. I think you sold the company for about two hundred and twenty-five million dollars. Was that a good deal for Remington? Was it? Uh, did it? Did everybody walk away with some money?
1: Sure. Um, you're going from a company that has. As losing money, so potentially has almost no value. Yeah. To two hundred twenty-five million million three years later. And so... Was um,
0: Victor happy with that outcome?
1: Victor was happy, um, but I also always thought that he, you know, the idea that he was no longer associated with Remington... Was hard for was, him. Was very hard sure. for him.
0: Because it was his baby.
1: Yeah. But if you run the numbers, he made about $100 million.
0: So he did on, well. On
1: the sale. Yeah. As did his partner, Ike Perlmutter. So... That's another reason, you know, I got called to go to Marvel.
0: And this is your bridge to Marvel. My question was going to be, how do you go from a, you know, electric razor company to the biggest comic book company, but it's this guy Perlmutter. Yeah. Perlmutter was the co-founder, or the co-partner of Remington. He sees what you've done there and he says to you what, Peter, you um, I'm an investor in Marvel. Like, how does he? How no, is he well, connected to Marvel?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that. Ike Perlmutter had a number of different companies, including Remington, and uh, that he also, would seed or he would invest in. That he, yeah, and ran. And one was a, actually, a Canadian toy company called Toy Biz that he had bought in bankruptcy. Hmm. So Ike, at one point, had acquired the rights to make all the Marvel toys. Wow. Okay. And so um, when Marvel went into bankruptcy, uh, in bankruptcy, any contract can be voided if it helps save the company. Yep. So basically his his right to make Marvel toys could p- completely disappear, which was a very big, important part he of his business. He would lose a lot of money. Yes, exactly. Okay. So Ike wanted to basically bring Marvel out of bankruptcy himself.
0: All right. Let's pause for a sec because I, I want to – Go back just a couple of years to set the scene. What what happened at Marvel? I mean, we're talking about the biggest characters in modern history, right? The biggest superheroes, Spider Mans and Iron Mans, and and Black Panthers and so on. Why is Marvel find itself in bankruptcy in
1: 1999? Well, because the bubble in comic books had long passed. So,
0: so, so let me, the bubble uh, yeah. in comic
1: books was hmm. in the early 90s. Let me make this clear for people. Hmm. The
0: bulk of Marvel's income in the 1990s came from comic books, from physical comic books? Yes. It's just hard to imagine. So Marvel was primarily a publishing house, essentially. That's
1: correct. Yes. They had not made any films at that point.
0: In the 90s, there were no Marvel films? No,
1: there were one or two very poor films made that in one case, for example, the company actually (laughs) went to the... Producer and bought the movie because it was so bad and wow. didn't want to put out.
0: But DC was making movies. There was Batman yes. and there was. So wait, why yes. wasn't Marvel making movies in the in the nineties when when I'm, the DC characters were? I can't. I don't know. Okay, so when we think of Marvel today. You think of a media company, basically. This was not really. It was a essentially a publishing house that also had some licensing deals for toys. Mr. Perlmutter owns a toy business as a licensing deal with Marvel, and he sees Marvel's going under, and he's thinking, holy, you know what? I'm going to lose this opportunity to make these toys. So he what? He calls Marvel and he says, hey, I have someone for you?
1: No. After a two-year bankruptcy, he succeeded in getting the judge in the case to accept his plan for the company going right. forward. So he had to basic, And so he uh, brought Marvel out of bankruptcy.
0: He becomes the biggest shareholder in the company. Yes. He has to pr- presumably buy a, a significant chunk of the company. And he says, Peter, I need you to come here and do what you did at Remington. Yes. All right. When you got to Marvel in 1999, were you a comic book fan? Did you know anything about comics? Nothing. <laughs> you, were just, you, you were a business guy. Uh, you were not a- I didn't know
1: anything about the comics. Did you
0: even books. know Stan Lee was?
1: Uh, uh, vaguely.
0: Was he there?
1: Yes. Stan was there, but he was a chairman emeritus. Right. He was not it's an a symbolic active role. Yes, yes.
2: Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma, it's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, hel dot slash wisdom.
0: All right, so... You've got a bankrupt company but an are eng- well, out of bankruptcy out of bankruptcy
1: Technically now out of bankruptcy which but is still- really
0: actually the one of the worst places to be cuz no one wants to right you got no cash good
1: people leave you've got no money Well we came out of bankruptcy you do have a, a a new financing the reality is most of the time these capital structures coming out of bankruptcy are almost as bad as what you had when you went in
0: All right so your core product that was fueling the business for the last previous decades, comic books, that was not going to
1: be your future. You knew that. Correct. So l- let me tell you what happened. I was on the job about six months. I knew nothing also about making movies. The movie business was actually the brainchild of a guy named Avi Arad. He was a big partner in Marvel. And um, and Avi had moved to uh, California to get us into into more films. And I would love to tell you that this was my idea, but it was not at all. Uh, he deserves the credit for driving that okay
0: let's let's just break this down a little bit because I, I think what what you're getting at is the future of Marvel was going to be in films, in entertainment. It was It was not going to be in comic books, printing comic books, right?
1: No, the future was going to be in all of the above. So okay. let me give you a, a sense of the model that I had in my head. yep. I would like you to think of a wagon wheel, and in the middle is the hub, and the hub is your intellectual property, it's your brands, and in the case of Marvel, I considered Spider-Man a brand, sure. the Hulk a brand, I looked at them just like I would looked at other brands at and other businesses. At shampoos and
0: at uh, curling irons? Yeah. got right. a long-range
1: okay. plan for them, right. how to grow them, yep. how, to, how to monetize them, and so on. That's your IP. And then you have various spokes, and the spokes are either media forms that you're participating in or consumer product categories that you're participating in. In the case of Marvel, it would be generally by licensing. And that would be toys and right. games. Right. And okay. Right. So, what did we okay. have when I was six months in? We only had two businesses. What were they? We had the comic book business. Okay. So, call that the print media spoke. Right. We're in the toy business because I Promoter's toy company, print media toys, and a little bit of other licensing. That's it. It's a very shaky wheel. Yeah. Now, the rim of the wheel is the synergy between all the spokes. So if you think about Marvel today, if you go to the movies, you're going to buy toys for your kids. You might get them back-to-school products or confectionery. Uh, You're going to play the video games. Uh, If you play the video games, you're going to go to the movies. It's all intertwined now. But at that time, we had only two spokes. And uh, you've got
0: Avi Arad, who's starting to look into movie potential. First of all, to make movies is very expensive. Um, I'm assuming you didn't have any cash to build a movie studio. So, did you just go to a movie company and say, hey, you guys can make this movie for us?
1: Yes. So, uh, Avi had started relationships with a number of the major studios. And in fact, those did play out as time went on. For example, X Men 1 came out in 2000. Right. We had done that with Fox. Spider Man 1 came in 2001. We did that with Sony, right. Columbia Pictures. Hulk 1 came out the next year, and we did that with uh, Universal.
0: And did Marvel make a lot of money off those?
1: We actually did okay, considering we invested zero funds. Right. Not a penny.
0: You just gave our, our, your- our, we got a share
1: of the revenues.
0: Right. Okay. But the movie studios are getting the bulk of that.
1: Yes. I read that at one point
0: in 2000, Marvel had $3 million in the bank, which was barely enough to cover its needs. The stock price was like- down to 96 cents a share or something like that. Okay. You've got some of these movie things are moving forward. But I have to assume you had to create a plan for how to move forward.
1: Sure. Yeah. What is the plan that you you sort of lay down? Well, let's start with the capital structure. We really cleaned up the capital structure. And then look, the movies just exploded. Yeah. I think many people do not appreciate the power of the comic book community. Comic book community influences popular culture in many ways, not yeah. just comic books. You see it more today now. Yeah, Their opinions on quality or not quality really matter. And so for X-Men, which at the time was Marvel's, I think, most popular comic book, still 1% or less of the population in, in the United States is in the comic book world. Wow. Yet the film premiered on a... Friday morning, so Friday at midnight, the lines were around the block at movie theaters. Wow. And when people start to hear that, they say, you know what? I don't know anything about... Com-. People, even X-Men, they didn't even know it was a comic book. They had yeah. no idea. Yeah. Uh, I got to see that movie. Yeah. And that's how it started.
0: From what I understand, right, the real turnaround happened when Marvel decides to produce the movies itself to actually invest money... In building out a facility to make the instead of going to the big, big movie houses to essentially become a movie house.
1: We were doing quite well, even without that change. However, in 2005, and this is again, I want to give credit to someone else on this. Two thousand five, I was actually vice chairman of the board. You at become that point. vice chairman,
0: I think, in two thousand three. You sort of lead the turnaround, and then you hand the reins off to a new right. team, and you exactly. became vice chairman. I okay, became vice the, chairman. Right, okay.
1: So we had a guy named David Mazel who had a dream that we could create our own studio, and and there was a lot of skepticism sure in the company and in the in the investment community. How the hell can Marvel <laughs> suddenly create a studio <laughs> right. like the big? We had made something like fourteen films before we started talking about our own studio. And we had, a, in effect, apprentices. Because we were not just walking away, we were on the set every day. And you basically can hire the same talent the studios do. They're all freelance, in effect. They come in for a project. And when the project's completed, they get paid and leave. Yeah. And uh, by having our own studio, we could keep all the money for ourselves hmm. instead of splitting it with the studio partner. Yeah. And in fact, we were able... Through a lot of efforts, including David's, to raise and, a little over $500 million to fund the studio in a deal that will never be repeated again in the motion picture business because we gave away no equity. Huh. But the reason we're able to do this is we had the greatest track record in the history of film as measured by average global box office. Hmm. Nobody was close. And we had this lineup Marvel has 7,000 characters, yeah. and the A-list might be 12 characters. We've made films from the A-list, maybe half of those characters. So there's wow. a lot more to go, and then there's the lenders saw so that as great potential. I mean, it's hard to believe that, that Marvel,
0: I mean, Avengers, X-Men, I mean, uh, Black Panther, Iron Man, all these characters, no one was making movies with them in the
1: 80s and 90s. I think I think uh, there, there's a number of reasons for that. One, the films that had been made way back, seventies, eighties, tended to be very campy. Men in tights, we often call them. Men in tights movies. The special effects did not exist. The computer-generated imagery technology did not exist. They were, you know, just not very good films. Yeah. But there was a film that changed everything. I think that people often talk about, and that was Terminator Two. Hmm. With Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah, the guy that he's fighting against was this flowing metal, yeah, and that was like, oh my god, yeah. Now we can actually make films where characters have powers and they do things.
0: Ten years after this bankruptcy, Marvel sells to Disney for four and a half billion dollars, which was a blockbuster deal at that time. Although today it was be worth probably at least twice that amount,
1: <laughs> or more,
0: for, or more. Um, Disney's done very, very well with that franchise. Um, I mean, right, 7,000 characters. Every movie's guaranteed to be one of the four or five biggest movies of the year. Um, I mean, you, you are essentially today printing money if you own a comic book company. Do you, when you sort of reflect on all of these, these different points in your career and these different turnarounds, I, I, I can't help but, but thinking that if you were giving somebody advice, you, you might almost say to them, go to a failing company. There's really nowhere to go except up. Is that is that fair to say?
1: You know, it all sounds very sexy now, right? I mean, you look back at Marvel. Yeah. Do you think that there were no days when we were yelling at each other, want to throw each other out the window <laughs> right. sometimes? Right, right. Or you think we just thought this up and we we're all brilliant and we all agreed on everything? Hardly. Hardly. It seems so pat now looking back but none of these turnarounds were none of them. Yeah. I would say to my wife on many of them in the first 6 months and she would tell you this. I'd come home and say, I think I made a major career blunder. <laughs> now they all worked yeah, out. Right. You can make a lot of money. That's the great part of this. But it's not easy. It's not yeah. for everybody.
0: You you have um you have a list that you you talk about, um, 32 Essentials of Turnaround Leadership. They're super valuable and and helpful. But I mean, you really really could apply this to a small organization, the PTA or a school board. I mean, you could really apply this to big and small organizations. So so let me, I want to ask you about a couple of them. I mean, one of them is um, a lesson that you say, never think I've seen it all before, right? Which, which, I think a lot of people would assume that that would be your approach. You saw this failing, and the turnaround, then you went to this company, and you oh, you've seen that. You've seen the bad morale. You've seen the same thing they get to Marvel. Yeah, I've seen this before. But but you're saying you actually haven't seen it all
1: before? No, definitely not. I mean, you you may have walked into the same kind of climate, but in terms of the solutions, uh, in terms of the people, it's always different. It's a huge mistake to think that you're so good that there's pat answers to particularly in turnarounds. How do you find the people when you get to a, a
0: failing company, when you're an outsider, who are going to level with you? and really Because a lot of people are scared. You might fire them. You might have to get rid of them. You have to down downs, whatever it might be. How do, you, how do you get people to tell you really what's going on, the truth?
1: By telling them the truth. So if uh, you're having a town hall meeting, which is all the employees are, are there, and someone says, are we going to have layoffs? You tell them the truth which is we might. I don't know right now. I have no plans right now for layoffs. And people begin to trust what you say. You're going to make changes in leadership. There's no question about that. There are various ways to find out who has the mentality to handle a situation where, as I said before, there's great uncertainty and who can't. Uh, You also find out who are the true team players and who aren't. And you're going to find those gems that I mentioned in the organization's that when they're freed up, really They will really perform, And yeah. then, yes, you're going to have to bring in some new people as well. And when you bring in new people, you have to test them to make sure that they can handle this kind of um, emotional situation.
0: One of the things you talk about is creating a new culture, right? You go to a failing company, you have to assume that there is a cultural problem. There may have been a strong culture at one point in the company's history, but they lost their way. And so your job is to create a new culture? Not easy, especially when you go into a company with a strong culture. It may have a negative culture, but it, it, it's probably pretty strong. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of resistance to creating a new culture. How do you do that?
1: Well, again, I think it's all about espousing certain fundamental principles uh, that, uh, that you actually live by, again, in your own actions. Uh, people are going to be watching you very closely. Uh, you know, every day you're on stage. I, I hate to say it, but th- there is that element. And um, what you say and how you act. And s- if you say, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, an organization that recognizes diversity, and you have one of your direct reports only hiring people of a certain color, you have to make a change. Yeah. Things where people are misbehaving, and your your new culture is we're just not putting up with that. Uh, you have to do something. And I've had people arrested. We're misbehaving. That certainly makes an immediate impact on on the uh, company. There's other things, too. Somebody comes in with a new advertising campaign and it's average, and you say, okay, well, you've lost people. Um, I would often go into a turnaround and cut the advertising budgets, and then I would say to marketing people, okay, so we need to have just as much impact or more than we had before. And a lot of people would say, if you're cutting my advertising budget, how can I have more impact? And here's the reality. It's really very simple. You come up with a great advertising campaign, a breakthrough advertising campaign.
0: You said something earlier that really struck me, which is that in every single case of a turnaround, it's not the product that's the central problem. It's not the marketing. It's not the efficiencies or inefficiencies. It is the management. And so you can – change the product or you can change the marketing, but if the leadership is not strong, it doesn't, the product isn't going to survive.
1: The way you change the marketing is by having strong leadership. It isn't change the marketing, then strong leadership. It's strong leadership, then change the marketing.
0: Yeah. Um, I like this one. Embrace true emotional maturity. Essentially, what you're saying is that if you're going to be a leader, you have to accept that you're not going to make everyone happy. You're going to have to do stuff that is going to make people upset and you can't worry about their opinions
1: Yeah, I think if you're doing turnarounds or any leadership position where it's not radical but you have to make change you're going to find people who will be unhappy it could be as severe as you're laying someone off or firing someone for cause on the other extreme it could simply be someone who had a point of view on a particular issue you decided to go in a different direction and in their minds they didn't win I will tell you that there are. I have scars from the turnarounds. Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean? There's there's people out there today, if you ask them about me. They hate you. They will give you a very poor report. Because Some you of these,
0: ruin their life, they'll say, or something I, like that.
1: I don't know if they go that far, but yes, they, they say this is a bad guy.
0: And how do you feel about that?
1: I uh, would love everyone to be happy, but deep down in my heart, I don't care at all. No, I have to be honest. A
0: part of you doesn't feel a little bit... I don't know. Wounded that somebody really feels that way about you?
1: No, because I have that emotional edge or maturity that you know it's going to happen. Yeah, and um, and so it is what it is. So I, there, so I can't change it.
0: So there may be people out there who are going to. I mean, you've been in, you've been in business for a long time. Who are going to say negative things about you? That's not abnormal. Who might say, "Oh, oh Peter Kune, who's the worst guy? He's horrible. He's." so cruel, but um, but you feel like every decision you made was made based on an honest assessment. It was not personal. It was something you had to do.
1: Let, let me start by saying I think that any decision you make in business is personal. Hmm. There's no such thing as not being right. personal. You know what I'm getting at sure. here. Sure. But, uh, well, I certainly will never argue that every decision I made was the right decision. My, my attitude has always been once I realize they are a mistake, go fix it. It's a little bit like the captain. We talked about the captain on the ship. I made a mistake. Sure. Well, it's not gonna happen again. Yeah.
0: What about um this is interesting? If possible, make changes all at once. So you come in and you just basically throw everything into the Yeah. Well, I have to be
1: honest with you. That is one is almost impossible to actually <laughs> accomplish. Right. I think what I'm trying to do, express on that one, is that you really don't want to wait. When there are certain decisions you know you're going to make, don't find an excuse to wait a month or wait for some more research on some topic. Go and do it because people are waiting. Don't drag it out. A lot of leaders I've I've dealt with often will do things that allow them almost to blame other people for a decision so yeah. that they don't be unpopular. One, one typical thing is you bring in a consulting company. And you know what their answer is going to be when you throw the problem at them. But you can now say to people, well, so-and-so-and-so, And this is what we got to do. That's a form of cowardice.
0: Did you bring consulting companies in when you ran businesses?
1: Very rarely. I didn't bring them in on strategy because that's my job. Sure. That's senior management as a group. That's you a are job, the, the, the consultant. job. Yeah. I, w- I wouldn't bring them in on that. Um, strategy actually is not that hard. It really it really isn't. Not in the businesses I've been in, yeah. which are creative businesses, non-technically sensitive businesses. But if there's something that I didn't have any background in, and this happens occasionally on turnarounds where I just have no background on a particular area, then you bring in someone for that to help yeah. you with that. Yeah. But not for, for general stuff that's really just my job.
0: Um, I mean, there are some CEOs who are – you know they're in it for the long haul. Bob Iger and some of the Uber Jolie who's been on the show from Best Buy and I mean they they are they love being CEOs. They love being managing big organizations for a long time. Is it fair to say that that is not a what you like to do? Be your strong suit. That really you are an expert in coming in, figuring out how to save a company, how to you know how to put out the fire. There's a fire you got to put it out, and then you move on to another company that that really being a long-term CEO is not really your
1: area of expertise? Absolutely. I would never hire me to run a good company. (laughs) I think I know what I'm good at and so on. And yeah, my average length of time on a turnaround has been about three years. And uh, that's at the time when you start to feel, you know, if I get run over by a truck tomorrow, the company will be just fine. Yep.
0: And so your strong suit is really saving the company, putting it back on the right Track, Let someone else, and then handing re- the reins yeah. out to somebody else. Yes. Do you think that leadership is something that you just inherited naturally and knew how to do from a young age, or do you think it's something that you learned and something that most people can learn? Your essential lessons. Do you think it's it's a learned skill or is it a natural innate thing?
1: Not at all. I think this phrase about natural born leader is very misleading. It doesn't exist in reality. No one is born naturally as a leader you learn it from life's experiences you learn it from how you're raised you learn it from taking risks some of the risks won't work out but some will that's where you learn a lot about yourself if you're honest with yourself when I was eight years old and my father was called up to go into the Korean War we went and lived in several different cities as part of that Uh, we were in the south we were in the northwest and we were in San Diego And even as an eight-year-old, I could see that there were differences in America, regional differences in how people thought. So already, I was learning at a very young age that, hey, I'm going to have to cope with different situations. I didn't know anything really about leadership, but it started there for me. So fair
0: to say that that you learned how to become a leader? Uh, Absolutely. Your your last... um lesson in turnaround leadership is know when it's time to go clearly you followed this you've known when it's time to go and and to be comfortable with it I guess to just make peace with it
1: yeah so at Marvel after three years I went to them and said I think it's time for me to go my self-image at least in that particular area is pretty accurate I know when I'm going to start to get bored won't be as effective and it's time for a change
0: These days, Peter Cuneo runs a company with his sons that invests in consumer media and entertainment companies. One recent project, a comic book company that they took from bankruptcy to a $100 million acquisition. And like a lot of us, he's busy working on a podcast where he'll be talking about those 32 fundamentals of leadership. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions.